What I have learned in life is that everything is much easier to said than done. Uh, I don't know about you, I've got friends who, who like to run. And I tell you, it's one thing to say I'm going to run, it's another thing to go run. Would you agree with that? That's one thing. I've got a friend who does ultra marathons. In other words, they are a hundred miles. And they go run a hundred miles. I'm like, they make cars, people. There's no use to go run a hundred miles. That doesn't make any sense to me. But people do that. And I'm more like this person that said this. I never run with scissors. Actually, those last two words were completely unnecessary. If you see me running, something is wrong, and you better run faster. Uh, because something bad is behind us. When I open up God's Word, I think there are things that are easier said and read than done. When we think about God's Word, what are some of the very difficult verses in the Bible that are commands for us to live out? If you were to think about that for a minute, what are some of those things that would be difficult for us to to live out in our life? One that comes to mind is to do all things without grumbling and complaining. Is that a difficult verse to live out? We've just come through an election cycle. You know that's a difficult verse to live out. To do all things, I kind of wish the Bible said to do some things without grumbling and complaining, to leave me a little bit of an out, to grumble and complain about things I'd like to. But to do all things without grumbling and complaining, I think is one of the, the most difficult verses in the Bible. How about love the Lord your God with all your soul and all your mind? And all your strength. See, that word all makes that verse so challenging. And then to love our neighbor as ourselves. I believe those words are challenging at times. But I'm going to tell you, I think there's another verse in the Bible that is very, very challenging. If you will, open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18. We're going to read together. Matthew chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 21. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times. And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. How's that for a difficult verse to live out? Think about that for a moment. Can you imagine hearing Jesus say that and be like, what just happened? Can you imagine the people with Peter saying, hey, we were pretty good at seven times. Just multiplied it. For many of us, to forgive somebody one time is one of the greatest challenges, right? Depending on what they've done to us. To forgive somebody one time, it seems to be so much struggle. But to forgive somebody 70 times, seven, seems like an impossibility. I truly believe this is one of the most difficult verses to live out in all of Scripture because if you realize if you were keeping up with, and you had a tally sheet going through and saying, okay, this person sinned against me once and twice, and you started keeping up, that's a lot of little tally marks. The clarity of Jesus saying to forgive that often. I think talks about how difficult it is and and the challenge it is for us. I think it's one of the most difficult things there is to master. The gift of forgiving someone else. 
Three of the most difficult words there are to say. I've been told the three most difficult words there are to say is I forgive you. The two most difficult words are I'm sorry and the most difficult word is the word no. I think that seems to work for me as being a struggle. But I forgive you is something that we as Christians, I believe, must learn to say more and more and more. And I think part of that is we have to realize that as part of the human condition, as part of living here on earth, if you're going to live around people, people are going to sin against you. You're going to sin against others. And so through our life, we're going to be asking for people to forgive us, and we're going to be asking uh, for other people to, uh, for, for our own forgiveness, asking ourselves to forgive other people. And you may be saying, Craig, that is so difficult. And I agree with you, it is. I'm reminded of a story that I read about of a lady named Mary Johnson. Back in 1993, her son, Laramian Bird, had, had gone to a party to hang out with his friends, and there was a young man who was 16 years old. His name was O'Shea Israel. And he took the life of Miss Mary's son. And he was sentenced to life in prison. What does 70 times 7 look like to her? What does once look like to her to forget? I think one of the most challenging things, news-wise, that's happened in several years uh, was the shooting in Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania, where the gunman went into an Amish school, sent out all the young boys, and took the lives of many of the girls. That day he shot ten girls. The man's name was Charles Roberts. Ages six to twelve and five died. What does seventy times seven look like to those people? This situation, I remember it bothering me so very much because I thought about a people who are pacifists. Most of us don't like bullies. I can't stand bullies. You want to bring out the bullying in me? Bully somebody else in front of me. I can't stand seeing somebody pick on someone who cannot take care of themselves, who won't fight back, who, who can't defend themselves. And you think of somebody going into an Amish community and doing this, how devastating that would be. What does 70 times 7 look like to them? And then we can go back to Hopkinsville, Kentucky. December 23rd, 1982, a young man by the name of Ted Morris had just finished his first semester at, at Lipscomb University. He'd gone home to see his family. <clears throat> and after, <clears throat> excuse me, after eating with his family, he decided to go out and be with his friends. As he leaves his house, he's not far from his house at all. A young man by the name of Tommy Piggage was driving car, drunk, and he hit and killed Ted Morris. Ted's parents, Frank and Elizabeth Morris, uh, were talked to. When they were talked to and, and through an interview, they said, we wanted the worst to happen to this young man who had taken the life of our son because of him being uh, an 
drinking alcohol and driving on the road. He had destroyed the life of our son, destroyed our lives. And for drinking and driving, he was sentenced to ten years. But was released with time served and probation. When Elizabeth Morris talked about this, she said that we wanted him in jail. We wanted him dead. What does 70 times 7 look like to them? Let's go back to Matthew chapter 18. When Jesus is telling this this incredible uh, lesson and talking about the unmerciful servant, He's trying to explain to us why we should be people who forgive. And again, the main reason is because we have been forgiven so very much. Let's read this together. And we look at Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 21. It said, Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you to seven times, but seventy times, seven times. He said, therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children, and all that he had felt, the servant fell to his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Can you imagine? Can you imagine being in debt with someone and when you could not pay the debt when it's been called into account, your family would be sold and you would be put into prison until you could work this debt off. If this were done today based on how many people owe great sums of money, we'd have to build a lot more jails. Would you agree? Those of us who went to Freed Hardin have been in jail a long time. Yeah, that's there. Ten years. I know that's what it took me to pay off my mortgage payment every month to pay off that fine university for my, for my studies. But this guy owed more than we could imagine. Continues on in verse 27. He said, Out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. The man was just forgiving a sum that he couldn't have paid back in ten lifetimes. And he went out and found someone who owed him a hundred denarii. That's, that's about three months' wages. That's not a little sum of money. A lot of the common worker then would make one denarii a day. So if he makes one denarii a day, that's three months' salaries. He loans somebody a, a lot of money, and he goes and asks for it. But compared to what being forgiven, it was nothing. What happens? Verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me, and you should, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I have had mercy on you. 
when this servant had been forgiven this great amount, evidently this was something that the other servants knew about. I'm sure they praised the king for his goodness and his mercy and his pity that he had on him. And they looked at this man and thought, this guy is the, quote, luckiest guy in the world. He owed so much and all out of nowhere, it was taken away. He didn't know anything. And to see him go out and mistreat someone would be something that would be so devastating, they go tell on him. It's like having a little brother. He does this. He goes and he tells the king, the servant tells the king what's going on, and they call him back in. And the king was angry. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So all so my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Pretty difficult verse, is it not? It is a struggle. It is something that is there and and to see this parable laid out and, and really when you start doing some math, this becomes even more powerful. Peter asked the question 70 times 7, the servant owes 10,000 talents to the king. The thing is, a talent is a unit of weight. We don't know if it's a talent of gold or of silver. We don't know what the talent is. But some of the conservative estimates I saw that basically said 10,000 talents, what he owed is 60 million denarii. That's 60 million days worth. He begs, he is forgiven. He knows he can never, ever pay this back. As I put down here, it would take him 200,000 years, making one denarii a day to pay back what he owed. That's why the king was angry. Why would you go out and be mad over three months when I forgave you 200,000 years worth of your debt payment? How do you think the people of that day felt when they heard Jesus say this? Did they see the pettiness in themselves, refusing to forgive someone else? Did they feel the the pain in their heart when they're thinking about, you know what, this person has really sinned against me and they have greatly hurt me? What's the point? I think the point is, for this to take place, we have to realize our own sinfulness before God. And to realize what He has forgiven us of. Matthew 6.14, in the middle of the Lord's Prayer, of the model prayer, it says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you your trespasses. You're praying, asking God to forgive you of sins, and then there's like a parenthetical statement for you to understand. Said, by by the way, if you don't forgive others, you can you. It's arrogant to ask for God to forgive you when you are not forgiving other people. And you think about the challenge that's there. C.S. Lewis has said, "To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable, because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you." If we have to be people who forgive, then it's important that we know what this is. To forgive means it's the act of excusing or pardoning another in spite of their slight shortcomings and errors. It means to drop, to hurl away from you, to put down, to let go, to release, literally to lose the evidence. 
This morning, is there somebody that you need to lose the evidence for when it comes to a sin they've committed against you? We've just mentioned what forgiveness is. Let's look at what forgiveness is not. Forgiveness is not approving or diminishing of sin. It's not saying, well, it's okay, nobody's perfect. If somebody has sinned against you, then that sin needs to be forgiven. And to forgive somebody is not saying sin is, the sin you committed was okay. Secondly, forgiveness is not denying a wrongdoing. It's, it's not denying that you were sinned against. When you forgive somebody, you're not saying it's okay, everybody messes up. You're not saying, well, you didn't really hurt me. If nobody hurts you, forgiveness is not necessary. Would you agree? Forgiveness only needs to take place when sin has taken place. Forgiveness also is not forgetting or waiting. It's not that God has no idea what you did yesterday. He forgets nothing, but I think it's about this. It's no longer on your bill. He's not going to hold you accountable for this anymore. Why? Because He's forgiven you of it. So with us, with someone else, it's important that we no longer hold somebody hostage by a sin that we've forgiven them of. If, we haven't, if we're still holding them hostage by that, then we have not actually forgiven them. I think that's a challenge. I think some people believe that sweeping something under the rug and not dealing with it is forgiveness, and that's really not true. I've just finished a book, which is dangerous, because uh, when you read through a book, I'm starting it again for the second time. And it's called The Emotionally Healthy Church. It's actually a really, really good book. And he said, the problems in many churches is we don't confront one another in the right way enough. What happens is we say we let something go, but really we bury it until we, you buried so much stuff, you sweat so much stuff over the carpet, you fall over it. And then things blow up. See, when you forgive it, something, nothing is swept under a rug because it's been dealt with. It has been handled. Forgiveness is also not ceasing to feel pain. I think that's a challenge. If somebody sinned against you and you're hurt, when you talked about these people at the beginning, I, I don't think Miss Mary Johnson ceased to feel pain after her son died, or the Morrises ceased to feel pain, or the Amish community ceased to feel pain. Also, it's not a one-time event. I don't know about you, but sometimes somebody has sinned against me, and I say, I forgive you today, and tomorrow I'm still mad about it, and I have to do it again. Sometimes forgiveness is something we have to remind ourselves that we have given. Also, forgiveness is not neglecting justice. If somebody has sinned, and jail may be what is there for them, then that is what should happen. Forgiving is not neglecting justice. Forgiveness is also not necessarily reconciliation. God's forgiveness is awesome. But forgiveness at times is what we do to make sure that we're not holding on to something, that we are letting something go. Again, forgiveness is pardoning or excusing another in spite of their slights, shortcomings, and errors. Really, it's excusing someone else's sin. Pardoning their sins. It's dropping it. It's hurling away from it. It's not putting it in a backpack with you and carrying it around. It is to lose the evidence. Well, if that's what forgiveness is, and we realize it's important, 
Let's talk about how do we do this. I like what C.S. Lewis also said. Everyone said forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something they need to forgive. I don't know about you, but I love receiving forgiveness. It is much more difficult to give it. So this morning, let's spend the rest of our class talking about how do I forgive if I know that God requires this of me. God God requires, Jesus requires me to forgive other people just as He requires me to be baptized for remission of my sins. Jesus requires me to forgive other people just as He requires me to worship Him in spirit and truth. So if it's something that's that important, let's talk about how we do that. Number one, very simply, identify who sinned against you. If somebody has sinned against you, make a list. People, a lot of times it says people you hope that you'll never see again. There may be a coach that sinned against you, a, a, a family a member that sinned against you, an ex that sinned against you. It may be the again, there's a difference between sweeping under the rug and forgiving. Write down what it is, the person who has sinned against you. We are entering the holiday season. Many of us are uh, getting ready for Thanksgiving. It'll be in a couple, a couple of weeks, and then we'll have Christmas uh, in the next month. And for some people, it is the most joyful, truly is the most joyful time of the year. But for others, it's a struggle because you'll be around some people who may have really hurt you. And some of you are making agreement with yourself that, okay, I will keep my mouth shut except to put turkey in it for the next two hours. Just to keep the peace, to keep grandma happy, we'll all get along here. If somebody has sinned against you, write this list down. Write down that they have sinned against you. Secondly, determine what they owe you. Determine what you owe. The king knew that his servant owed him, again, millions of denarii. He owed him that much money. The, 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 the servant who went out, the king owed, the servant owed him. The servant went out, found another servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Determine what it is. They owe you. Guess what? Every debt has an amount. That's why you are sent statements. Name what has been specifically taken from you. Be specific. And I like this. General forgiveness does not cover specific sin. And you can't cancel a debt that has not been completely identified. I've always told people, if I am missing, and you cannot find me, Please find Freed Harmony University in the business department because they can find anybody. They can. You know why? Because it has a statement attached to it and how much you owe. I remember feeling really bad for one of my cousins who also went to a, a Christian school and, and as he finished up, he thought he was finished with his student loans and there had been one that had been lost in the processing and it had been dormant for like five years and then they said, oh yeah, you owe this money too. I've got a friend who has a business person who is mad at him because the business person is like, you owe me for fixing this part of your house. And my friend says, I don't pay people who don't write a bill down and tell me exactly what I owe. 
You put that bill in my hand, I will write you a check right then. I want to see what it is I owe. Guess what? You need to determine what it is that you owe, that somebody owes you for sinning against you. And I think that is what makes sin and calculating this so very difficult. When I was in high school, I guess I was in college, my brother was in high school, somebody stole some money out of our house. We got the money back, but we never felt quite that secure in our house again. I'm a fisherman. I, I, I love to fish. Uh, my garage looks like a, uh, uh, the sporting goods section at Walmart, except much less organized. There's fishing rods everywhere. We had a yard sale yesterday to make room, getting stuff out of my house for Brianna to be able to move into that house after we were married. And the first thing I did was took all my fishing rods in the house. You know why? Because they ain't for sale. That happened. You can check with her. That, that happened. Golf clubs, fishing rods went in the house. Gun safe got covered up. I mean, we, there are certain things that are special, okay? She's more special than all of them. Let me get that out there. Way more. But I had gone on a trip a few years ago, and when I came home from this trip, I got up and went to worship that day, and... and uh, I told somebody at worship, I said, I'm going to fish just a little bit this afternoon. I had a, there was a, a pond in between my home and the church building. I said, I'm going to fish some. When I went home after services, I raised up the garage door, and every fishing rod I owned was gone. Somebody had stolen them all. Insurance pay, paid, and I, I was able to pay a deductible, but I, I was able to go buy uh, new fishing stuff. But some of the old fishing stuff, I had a lot of memories tied in with that. First fish, first bass over a certain weight, all these things. That one that the first one, and the thing is, I never got that back. But I had to determine what is it I am owed. Did they take my innocence? Did they did they take my security? Did, did they take money? What is it they took? Write down what it is somebody owes you, and then cancel that debt. I believe it was Andy Stanley who was talking and he gave out this little form. He said he keeps this form very handy because this is the prayer he prays when he forgives someone. He said, Heavenly Father, fill in the blank, has taken this, the exact thing they have taken from me. I've held on to this debt long enough. I choose to cancel this debt. This person doesn't owe me anymore. Just as you have forgiven me, I forgive this person. I think it's pretty powerful to think about it. Because when you start thinking about debt and forgiveness, we're talking about a contract, are we not? I mean, that's a bank, those are banking and money terms. Those are, and you think about it, it is something that this person has done this, I am going to do this. And then once you have forgiven them, drop the case. In the words of Disney, let it go. As difficult as that is, remember, somebody doesn't owe you anything if you've forgiven the debt. 
Somebody doesn't owe you anything anymore if you have forgiven that debt. And I think that's important for us to realize, didn't I say this was a whole lot easier said than done? It's a struggle. When somebody hurts you, you can choose revenge, you can choose blame, or you can choose to forgive. I know which one the Bible and Jesus says that we should do. It is unnatural. It is a struggle. Forgiveness is not natural. What is natural is what? To fight back, to to hold a grudge, to push this away. But that is not what Jesus calls us to do. One person wrote and they had their own prayer that they fill out. This is the thing they fill out when they're really struggling forgiving someone. So if someone hurts you, it says oftentimes the battle takes place in the mind and attempts to rob us of our inner peace. The wisdom of my mother has taught me to say, Father, I'm sorry for picking up this burden or situation. Name it. Back up again. Help me to continually forgive this person and turn them back over to you so that you may bless them where they need it most in their life. I ask that you, my Father, fill me with your peace that passes all understanding. In Jesus' name, and then thank Him. I think that's pretty powerful when you continue to deal with that. Well, what do we do? See, there's a lot of power in forgiveness, and also when somebody hurts you, you need to realize that an unbelieving world and a believing world is watching you to see how you function when people sin against you. We started out talking about Miss Mary Johnson, what's pretty incredible about Miss Mary Johnson is she started visiting this young man, O'Shea Israel, in prison, sentenced to life at 16 years old as an adult. She began visiting, became, began visiting with him. She determined she's lost one young man, her son. She didn't want to lose another. And during this time, they developed a deep friendship. And she became a mother to him. And at the end of 17 years, he came up for parole. One of the things he needed to be paroled is he needed a place where he could live. She went to the superintendent of her building and vouched for this young man, say, if they will release him and let him live here, I think he'll do fine. And she has fully forgiven him. See, that's 70 times 7. Go to Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. After those young ladies' lives were taken, the Amish people in that community went to the family. The man who pulled the trigger, he had a, a, a estranged wife and children, and they took food to that family. They visited that family. People from the Amish community actually went to that man's funeral. One reporter was in in there and he was in a place where they had all the bodies of the, the young ladies laid out for their funeral service, for their visitation, if you will. And unlike some of us, 
when somebody dies in, in the Amish community, the children, everybody's a part of that funeral. They come and they know what death is. They see that. And they gathered the children around one of the oldest men in this community, and he went in and said, you know what? The man who did this is not evil. The action he committed was. And we want to forgive this family, forgive this man, and we want to pray for his family as they go through a difficult time. People all over the country sent money to the, these Amish families. And one of the interesting things was they said, why are they sending us money? How does money fix anything that happened? But they took the money that was sent in and split it and gave part of that money to the man who killed these, these children, gave it to his wife and children so that they'd be taken care of. That's 70 times 7. One of the articles said this, to the extent that the Amish are aware of the outside attention to their act of forgiveness, most are uncomfortable with it. They fear that they are receiving praise that only belongs to God alone. They're like, God has forgiven us so much. Why should people give us special attention? They also worry they may be held to a high standard they cannot keep, freely admitting that it's harder to forgive petty offenses amongst themselves than to forgive the outsider who murdered their children. How's that for honesty? It was easier to forgive this one huge act of violence than to to do that in this community. And let's go back to the Morris family. I think what's very powerful is this young man, Tommy Piggage, was, was sentenced to prison and ended up getting out. But one of the things he had to do was he had to go speak at Mothers Against Drunk Driving rallies and, and go to schools and talk about what he had done. And in his first rally, Miss Morris went to hear him. Elizabeth Morris went to hear him. And after she heard him speak, he mumbled. He said, I'm a murderer. I shouldn't be here because of what I've done. I should be in prison. She said at that moment, she had compassion on him. And she went up to him to, to thank him for speaking. And when she went up to him after he got through speaking, he had been drinking. She smelled alcohol on his breath. She put him in her car and drove him back to jail. And She said he cried the whole time. Over the time that they were in jail, she visited him. Her husband, they began to visit him, and they actually asked for him to be released again. And they said, we'll take care of the driving for him. We'll carry him to every speaking engagement he has, and they did. Over the years, one night on the way to a speaking engagement, Tommy asked to be baptized. This family was a member of the Little River Church of Christ outside of Hopkinsville, Kentucky. Now, and they baptized him into Christ, and for the next several years to this day, they set a place for him. He became, they didn't replace their son, but he became a son to them. If you're at church in Hopkinsville, Kentucky this morning, Elizabeth Morris, if she's feeling well today, her husband has passed away, if she's feeling well today, guess what? She's there. You know who drove her? Tommy Piggish. Seventy times seven is powerful. 
And I pray that we as God's people and me, myself, myself will, will grasp this and be someone who forgives as Christ does. Thank you for your kind attention today. It's time for a class to be over.